You may be seated. Our scripture lesson today comes from Romans 6, 20 to 23. If you'd like to follow along in your Bible or there's Red Pew Bibles in front of you. And that's Romans 6, 20 to 23. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Apparently, I can't get that on. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I just ask as we come to your word, that you would instruct us in the past, that you would have us walk, that your spirit would minister to our hearts, even as we listen and think about what you say here. I pray that you might just be teaching all of us sinners to be conformed more to the image of Jesus Christ. Watch over me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. Pray all these things in his name. Amen. So, we've been preaching through the book of Romans all year so far, and the last two weeks we have been focused on Romans chapter 6. And if you've been with us, you know that the whole of Romans 6 is really Paul giving a couple of different answers to this one big question, which is, if your salvation is by grace alone, and if good works don't don't earn you stuff, and if your sins are covered by Jesus, then why obey? Why fight sin and seek righteousness? If you weren't with us, so in verse 1 through 11, Paul focuses on our union with Christ. He says that because we're united to Jesus, something has been done to us, and we've actually died to sin and actually been given new life in Jesus, and so we should count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And then in verses 12 through 19, he gives a second answer. He says that sin is slavery. It's a slavery to our destructive desires, and so we should want to be free But the only way to be free is going to be to offer ourselves as slaves to a new good master, which is God. That serving God is the only way to live a free life. And now in these last few verses, Paul gives a third answer. It's tied up with the other two. We're going to get to that answer in a minute. But first, I want to try to give you this idea that is in the background to what I think is Paul's third answer, and it means we're going to start in a weird place, all right? So the Greek philosopher Aristotle. Um, Aristotle is one of the most important thinkers in all of Western history, and he, in his metaphysics, he sets out one of the questions he tries to answer is this. He says, what is like the ultimate ideal of stuff? What does it mean for something to be perfect or truly exceptional or excellent? And as he considers it, he ends up arguing that there's three ways that something can be excellent or perfect. Three transcendentals, they would be called, if you took a Philosophy 101 class. And here's what they are. They are truth, goodness, and beauty. Truth, goodness, and beauty. So truth is kind of the obvious one for something to be ideal or perfect. It has to be true, right? Because if it's false, then that's not good. Um, By goodness... Uh, Aristotle means 
in some sense, he means that everything, the things that have a thing they're supposed to do, right? So like a hammer is supposed to drive a nail, and a chair is meant to be sat on, and if you try to sit on a, a hammer or use a chair to drive in a nail, that you're not using that thing for the good. But, but Aristotle means that about human beings, too, that we have a purpose that we're supposed to fulfill, um, a, you know, a sort of things in our lives that we're supposed to live out. And so for human beings, he means, like, morality, right? He means ethics, so good in the sense of, like, morally good. So things are perfect when they're good, and when then the third category is beauty, that excellent things aren't just correct and moral, but they're also beautiful. They are attractive and compelling. So truth and goodness and beauty, all right? He says those are the three elements of what makes things great. And here's, here's why I'm thinking about the Aristotle's transcendentals. Um, so this thing has happened in the modern world, I think, that Christians kind of remark upon in different ways. So, for example, Christians often talk as if they feel like the modern world has lost a sense of truth, right? Maybe, maybe in churches even people feel that way, as people have tried to kind of tame Christianity and abandon the cross and resurrection and challenging things like that. And our world feels like it's abandoned those truths to many of us. And Really, in a lot of ways, it feels like our world has kind of given up on truth as a whole, that it's all skepticism and political spin. And we as Christians often remark on what feels like a lack of goodness in the world, right? A lack of kind of morality. We feel like values have been forsaken. Um, We see our neighbors, our children, our other people around us making choices that we don't feel like we agree with. And it's true in a sense that the world has always been sinful, and some of it is probably that we just need to admit that it's never been the good old days. But there is something that's changed, right? That a hundred years ago, even if people weren't living out the same convictions, um, they sort of had this sense that they agreed with them, and they don't feel like they do anymore. But what I want to suggest is that we lost both of those things, truth and goodness, because we first lost a sense of beauty in Christianity. We lost a sense of beauty. I'm not going to go through the whole history of why I say that, but let me explain why the impact of that and then try to give you an example, okay? So truth without beauty does not compel belief. It doesn't get people to believe it. It's just cold ideas, right? And you might agree or disagree with sort of cold, hard ideas, but they're not the sort of thing you believe let alone the sort of thing that makes you praise or worship. What happened, I think, is that the truths of Christianity lost their appeal and beauty. They lost their ability to drive people to wonder and awe and fear, and instead they became kind of abstract ideas. And then they lost their power, right? And that's obvious when you recognize the fact that most people who doubt Christianity. There are a few people who pour through the Hebrew manuscripts and read the philosophical arguments, but for most people, it's not that. It's that it feels silly to them or outdated, right? And that feeling is really a description of a change in how we feel about beauty. Goodness without beauty doesn't get people to obey. Goodness without beauty becomes pointless rules, and rules don't inspire obedience in most of us. They inspire rebellion, We've lost any sense that the Christian picture of life is noble or attractive, and instead it seems cruel and arbitrary to many in our world. And so then people bailed on those values and morals, right? Not because they concluded they were wrong, 
but because they became ugly to them. And some of that is the church's fault. We um, worked to make God reasonable and tame and respectable and bought into the idea that the Christian life was something that was meant to be, on the one hand, easy and on the other hand, miserable, and all of that probably helped contribute. But that, I think, changed, and it underlies almost all of the challenges that we feel today. But that's really abstract, so let me try to give you a concrete example of what I mean when I say that. So think about the way our culture shifted in its understanding of physical intimacy. And I will frame it that way so that um, everybody, you know, there are kids and stuff. But um, there have always been lots of people who didn't follow God's call, right, to purity and physical intimacy and reserving it for marriage and, you know, fidelity in marriage and chastity outside of it. Um, it's not the good old days, and it never was, right, as Mark Twain said. But there is something that's changed, too. And here's what I think it is, really, when you think about it. 200 years ago, if you say what kind of stories were told about physical intimacy, um, they painted physical intimacy outside of that kind of, you know, God's directives as something that was unattractive. Um, They painted men who sought that sort of thing as predators or animals. They painted it as something that was um, doing less than, you know, than the full kind of flourishing of humanity. And what they painted as beautiful was, was chastity and fidelity and, you know, and people who, who were seeking to kind of follow that. That was the kind of stories, right? Go read Jane Austen. You know, I mean, that's the kind of stories that we're told. And what has changed, um, well, first of all, let me just say, I mean, that, there were problems with that world, right? I don't want to paint that with a rosy picture. Um, oftentimes, those you know, that society relied on kind of shaming and hurting people and didn't offer the gospel in the face of that sin, right? And scarlet A's and public shaming are not how you inspire obedience. But there was also something in that world that helped people fight sin because they had a sense that if they wanted to do what was honorable and virtuous and desirable, right, that they would seek to pursue that sort of set of moral callings. And what's changed in our world is how we perceive beauty in relation to those callings. So now, physical intimacy outside of marriage is painted as exciting and sometimes almost transcendent. If you watch a movie, right, it's the, 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 the eyes meet across the room, and then they're, you know, they're sitting in conversation, leaning in, and then it's like, you know, pounding music and, you know, and sleek lighting and all of that stuff. That's pictured as beautiful suddenly. And meanwhile, things like chastity and fidelity are painted as unattractive, right? Chastity is for the naive or the repressed or the immature. And physical intimacy within marriage is painted as dull and unexciting. And if someone tries to follow God's commands, it's assumed that they're repressed or maybe even perverse. Can you feel that? How that story changed. That's the thing that changed in our world. And all the stuff that I feel like we focus on, changes in behavior, really flowed out of that. We changed our perception of what beauty looked like, of what was beautiful and what was ugly, and that then changed our morality. And here's why I'm saying all of that. Because Paul's final argument here in Romans 6, if I could try to sum up what he's saying here, and the thing that lies behind everything before it, is he's saying we should pursue righteousness because sin is actually ugly and righteousness is truly beautiful. He's arguing that sin is actually ugly and righteousness is truly beautiful. 
course, he doesn't quite use those words, but let me show you why I say that. So start in verse 20 of our text. Paul starts off with this question. He says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. All right? So what he's saying here first, remember last week he's saying you can either be slaves to sin or slaves to God. And there's that natural question. We kind of touched on it last week, which is we feel like, well, we don't really want to be slaves, right? We want to be free. And so he's saying it is true that in sin you are free from God, right? It is true that there's a sort of freedom that exists in sin. But then in verse 21, he says, all right, but what about that freedom? He says, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. So Paul says, what did you get out of that sort of freedom? What you got was shame and death. Remember, Paul's using death here in Romans 6 to mean more than just physically dying at the end of our lives. But Paul pictures the whole of life in sin as a sort of living death, chasing after things that cannot satisfy us, being constantly on this treadmill that leads us to destruction. And we'll come back to that idea, but, but notice what underlies that argument. Paul's saying the reason you should want to be free from sin is because sin is actually ugly, even though it looks beautiful. And then verse 22, he says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefits you reap lead to holiness, and the result is eternal life. And eternal life, again, that's not just heaven when you die. He's using that the way he uses death to picture this thing that's ultimately in the future, but that also flows back into the present, this sort of life that we get to experience in Christ. That's something that's, that, that, that's calling us. It transcends this world and calls us beyond this world. And holiness is the same idea. Holiness in Scripture is a way of saying that something is exalted or lifted up. And so the images it uses are of things like, like light and cleanness and shining gemstones and spotless snow. They're images of beauty. So Paul is saying that when we're given that choice between slavery to sin and slavery to God... It ought to be an easy choice because righteousness is, in fact, the beautiful and attractive and beneficial calling. And sin is, in fact, the destructive one that leads to death. As he sums it all up in verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's ultimately how he answers the question, why obey? Do you want the wages of sin, which are death? For the gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when you frame it that way, right, then we're suddenly like, oh, we feel like we do know the right answer. We have this sense that, of course, we ought to pursue righteousness and turn aside from sin because sin is ugly and righteousness is beautiful. That idea of righteousness being beautiful and of sin kind of enticing us by offering itself as beautiful instead, is actually all through the Bible. It's one of those things I think we so easily miss because we focus on just the sort of, I don't know, the theology and morality of the Bible. But like, just listen to part of Psalm 19. I'm not going to put it up here, but this is a psalm of praise to God for his commands and his laws. And here's what the psalmist says. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. 
The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. David in that psalm is not saying that you obey God's law because it's correct, right? He's saying that it's beautiful and that that's what should draw us into obedience. Where Jesus makes the same point over and over. So for example, in John 15, he's calling his disciples to keep the Lord's commandments. And so in verse 10, he says, If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus is saying, we're to keep God's commandments. But why? Verse 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. He's saying that we're following God's commands not because they're correct, again, but because our joy overflows as we do. Or as he simply expresses it elsewhere in John 10, he says, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. That Jesus frames the call to righteousness as a call to life. And I could go on and on with that theme because it's really all through the Bible. I mean, think about like, it's so striking to me, back in the Garden of Eden, right? The serpent tempts, tempts Adam and Eve, but they don't eat of the fruit until they look at it and see that it's pleasing to the eye and useful to gain knowledge right? The scriptures are full of stories of people who, who choose to sin and then the destruction that those choices bring. It's full of promises of hope for reward and joy and flourishing as we follow God's commands. One of the core points of scripture is to convince us not just about the truth of God and not just about the goodness, you know, that he calls us to, but of the beauty of God and the life that he invites us into as well. Our problem, I think, at root is often that we've lost a taste for that beauty, and so we struggle with the truth and the goodness. So what does that mean for us? How do we actually like, live into that and live with that fact? At its most basic level, it means that we as Christians need to relearn the right story about the world. The stories we tell about what's good and bad, what's attractive and unattractive, what's noble and what's, you know, what's not, those stories are really what train us in beauty. And we as Christians need to relearn the right story because in a lot of ways I think we let ourselves buy into the wrong stories even if we say the right things. But how do we do that, right? Especially in our world where as much, it's not just those people out there, but you and I struggle sometimes to feel that sense of beauty. Let me offer four thoughts about what it looks like practically to live that out. First, the first part of relearning the right story is engaging the culture critically. Engaging the culture critically which is to say that everything around us is telling us stories about what is beautiful and ugly, but often we don't reflect on it, we just let it shape us. That is especially true in our media-driven world, 
right? I think that almost all of us approach the world out there, right? Uh, You know, I mean, all of the advertisements and billboards and magazines and television shows and movies and music and internet banner ads and articles and the stuff that makes up so much of our life, we approach it as consumers because that's what the world says to do, which is just, here's the thing and you it in, right? Don't think about it, just kind of consume it. That is the posture that the world naturally puts us in. Now, some Christians have tried to challenge that by instead saying to be avoiders. That is to say that you just try to, like, have nothing to do with that. And that doesn't, I mean, maybe some of us could use a little more avoiding. <laughs> but, but on the whole, that's not really a solution, right? Because we're called to be in the world, just not of the world. But what our call as Christians is, is to be questioners. Not to be consumers or avoiders, but to be questioners. Here's what I mean. When you're watching something or reading something or listening something, just ask yourself questions like this. Ask yourself, what is this thing trying to sell me? That's a good starting place in our world, right? Ask, what is its message about what is beautiful and ugly? Ask, how does it picture the good life? And is that life really that good? Ask, does the world really work the way this is claiming? And then also be asking, how does this relate to the calling of Jesus, and what story would Jesus tell instead? We need to ask those questions all the time. And I don't just mean about the big things. I know I gave that one example of physical intimacy, and we're going to touch on that again, but I mean like like HGTV. Do you guys watch, some of you watch HGTV? It's the like housing, buying, and renovation television show. It's become hugely popular in America, right? And there is this really interesting undertone to every one of those shows, because at the beginning, this person like needs a house, or they have a house that's not the house that they want, and everything is grim and gloomy, right? And they have these shots where the lighting's bad, and the people are just kind of like standing like this in the middle of their like unfinished basement or whatever, right? And then, and then this thing happens, and what happens is that they go look at some houses, or they go come in and knock out some walls and get to work renovating, right? And these things happen to them, and then by the end of the show, they found completion, right? And now there's the granite countertops and the patio furniture outside, and they're out clinking champagne glasses on that patio furniture, relishing life, right? And, and look, I mean, <laughs> the world doesn't actually work like that, right? <laughs> I mean, sure, like, a house is great, and, you know, I mean, renovating a room is great, and, you, I mean, that's a wonderful thing. But if you are unhappy sitting out next to a concrete slab, you're still going to be unhappy even if it's a swimming pool. That's the reality of the world that we live in. And frankly, the lie of beauty that that, so, that that kind of thing has sold us, right, as we don't reflect on it, that's caused a lot of people issues. I mean, how many people are drowning under mortgages and second mortgages they can't afford because they've bought into a notion of beauty that causes them to chase this thing in a home? I mean, it's a, the main re- one of the main reasons we had an economic collapse eight years ago, right, is because people had bought into that idea of beauty. And so what we need to do is just be questioning those stories, right? To watch it and say, really? Is that really how it works? And start to recognize the sorts of pictures of beauty that the world is selling us. At the same time, we also need to learn to tell God's story more beautifully. We need to tell God's story more beautifully. So take that story about physical intimacy that we already mentioned. I think about this a lot as my kids in a few years will be at the age where we're going to have to start talking about these things. 
And it's easy, I think, for us as Christians to tell our kids God's rules, right? And to maybe make a few gestures at dire warnings of certain negative consequences. But the problem is that the world is going to tell them that sin is a voyage of exploration and excitement and self-discovery and God's rules are bitter and isolating and miserable. And it's not really a surprise when they then struggle to keep them. The answer is to try to explain that what Christianity offers is, in truth, more beautiful than what the world proposes. That there's more exploration and self-discovery in God's design, and less fear and abuse and exploitation. That, um, that it's honorable to not use another person just to satisfy your own appetites, right? That, that physical intimacy is meant to be a way of building up and causing another person to flourish and grow, that is meant to show our commitment to them and our respect for them and their dignity, to tell the story like, like that God doesn't invite you just to mess around in a music shop with a bunch of different instruments making nary a squawk and clang on all of them, but instead to learn to be a virtuoso with one. <laughs> to tell the story in ways like that to people, right, and invite them to see the actual beauty and goodness of God's commands not just the rules, and through that to find the power to help people change. And that can be hard for us, because often when I say that, we don't really feel that sense of beauty either. I see that in my own heart, right? Often that's the place that I feel myself trapped, where I've felt myself shaped by the world, and so I know what God commands, but I struggle to believe that it's good. So how do we deal with that? I mean, on the one hand, I feel like there's lots of little answers. Worship, for example, worship is essential for shaping our hearts, not just our minds, to feel the truth about the world. Seeking to live in community with each other, where we tell each other the truth about our choices, is another. I mean, read old books written from days when people had a different sense of beauty. Um, Especially read like biographies of faithful Christians, listen to good sad songs that tell the truth about the world, soak in the Bible. There's all kinds of little things we can do to try to foster that. But the root thing that we need to do is simply to seek to tell ourselves the truth about our sin and about righteousness. When we talk about repenting of sin, which is something that we as Christians are called to do, we don't mean saying, gee, Lord, I'm sorry. Perhaps the best definition of repentance in Scripture is as grieving sin. Grieving it. Which is to say that we own the truth about our sin and the damage that it's caused to other people. And as we tell ourselves the truth, as we grieve our sin, it starts to lose its power. And more than that, we need to practice relishing the glory of the Lord and his ways. Over and over, we're called in Scripture to delight in the Lord. To delight in him. To just seek to stop and sit in his goodness and reflect on it. When we feel like something in scripture is just an arbitrary rule, what we're called to do is not just to say, oh well, but rather to say, but why is it good? And then chase after that and claw your way after that as, it, as that answer eludes you until at last you feel like you found a sense of it. All right, so we're called to engage the culture critically and tell God's story beautifully. And third, we need to seek to fight for joy. We need to seek to fight for joy. 
See, a big part of this that I haven't mentioned is that one of the main moves sin uses to convince us that it is beautiful is by confusing beauty with what is easy. By confusing beauty with what is easy. Righteousness is more beautiful than sin, but sin is always easier, at least in the short term. Even though it will cost you more in the end, in the moment, it is always easier to give in. The Apostle Paul pictures our calling as Christians as a marathon, a long, tiring race. Here's how he says it in Philippians 3. He says, Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, which is the life Jesus calls us to. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying that the Christian life is is straining and pressing on. It's like this long, exhausting race. But what he's fighting for in it is a prize of unimaginable value. Saying that righteousness is beautiful does not mean that it is easy. But it means that it is worth it. And we need to seek to commit ourselves to fighting for what is worth it. Here's the question we have to ask. Will we live our lives struggling for things that actually do bring us joy and satisfaction, that actually do help us to grow and flourish as human beings, or will we settle for sin's fleeting substitutes? Will we take the easy road that leads to death or the hard road at the end of which is life? I've used this quote by C.S. Lewis before once, but um, it really is perfect in summarizing this, all right? Lewis says this. He says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. So part of it is learning to tell the story right, and then the other part is choosing to commit ourselves to chasing after the beauty that we recognize is true. That's three ways, three parts of relearning the story. One last note on all of this. And it's kind of a word of caution as we talk about the beauty, nobility of righteousness and the ugliness of sin. I know that makes many of us feel a weight. One last reason that I think that we kind of buy into those lies about what is beautiful and what is ugly is because we sin. And to acknowledge the truth about it makes us feel fear and revulsion. And on the one hand, that's not all wrong. It's not the modern approach, but there is an appropriate fearfulness and revulsion we should feel towards our sin. But that fearfulness is not meant to crush us or weigh us down, but rather to lead us to the cross. As we confront the reality about the world and how far we fall from righteousness, don't forget the gospel. That's the last part of all of this. Don't forget the gospel. It's there in that last part of Romans 6.23 we read this morning, right? As much as Paul is calling us to recognize the death that lies in sin and the life that is in Christ, he also says it's the wages of sin that is death, but the gift of God that is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
There's a contrast there between works and God's grace. The wages of sin is death, and that is what all of us are, in fact, owed. But it is the gift of God that both gives us the righteousness of Jesus and invites us to follow it. And so as much as we feel that weight, as we start to tell ourselves the truth about the world, we need to let that weight drive us to Jesus and to delighting in him. In fact, as you start to recognize your sin is ugly, and as you start to desire Jesus' righteousness, that will give you even more of an appetite for the grace and the good news that Jesus Christ himself has made us righteous. Jack Miller has this quote, and it's one of my favorites. I've used this before too, but he says, cheer up, he says, cheer up, you're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. Those two things come together. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, but you're more loved than you ever dared hope. So we rest on the gospel and we pursue righteousness because it is what is truly good. So as we come to a close, this is the answer Paul gives to that question. We've asked the last, you know, this week and the last two, right? Why should we obey? Why should we seek to be righteous? We pursue righteousness, he says, because we're united with Christ and we've died to sin and are alive with him to God. And we pursue righteousness because sin enslaves us and Jesus Christ gives us a means to be free by giving ourselves to God. And we pursue righteousness because that freedom and service to God is truly beautiful and noble and sweet and pure. Those are the answers he gives. Let me try to sum them up like this. So my kids, like all kids, sometimes get very irrational ideas about what they want. So like the other day, right, I was going to take Canaan out to spend some time one-on-one with him. And I was like, Canaan, let's go out together and we're going to get ice cream or some kind of treat, you know, whatever you want. And we're going to go to the places you want to go and do the things that you want to do. And Canaan was sitting playing with Legos and he was engrossed and he's like, no, I don't want to go. Right? Now, obviously, I know that this outing is what he actually wants, right? And it's what's actually good for him. And I know that he's going to throw a fit later if I don't make him come. But, um, but he's not thinking like that, right? All he sees is his Legos. And so I say, nobody, you're going to love this. Let's go. And he says, Daddy, do I have to? And my response is the time-honored response of parents everywhere, which is, no, you don't have to. You get to. But that's really the key difference to how Paul is addressing our call to righteousness. There are all kinds of ways that we try to tell people, you have to obey, you better obey God. And in Romans 1 to 5, he really deconstructs all of those. But the reason isn't because we're not called to righteousness, but because that approach is misguided. What we're called to is not God coming and saying, you have to obey, but he is saying, you get to. That he is inviting us into a truer and fuller and better life than the life we could ever live in sin, chasing our own little desires. We get, we get to pursue righteousness. We get to become the grand and significant creatures that God has made us to be. And this, he says, is how. So let's seek after that together, not as a grim command, but as a wonderful privilege. We're invited to true life in Jesus Christ, so let's seek to pursue it. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I just pray as we come to you that you would just teach our hearts to believe that. Teach my heart to recognize the truth about the beauty of your calling and seek to live my life in pursuit of that beauty. 
pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We get the privilege this morning now to come to the Lord's table. As we do, we confess our hope in him who is our salvation and righteousness. We use the words of the Apostles' Creed, which for the last 2,000 years have been the words the church has used to confess this hope. Would you say it with me as it's printed in your bulletin? I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Amen. I'll invite the elders to come forward. The Lord's table, as much as it is an opportunity for us to celebrate truths about Christ, and as much as it is a good thing for us to do, is centrally an event of beauty in the Christian life. That it is not simply that Jesus tells us some facts about his death or proclaims some ideas about it, but that he brings us to the table that we might taste and see that the Lord is good. That in these tangible signs we are to be reminded not simply that Jesus Christ is our sacrifice or substitute as he is, but we are to reminded that he is our feast and we are called to feast on him. So as we participate this morning, take this as an opportunity to reflect on and relish the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done on our behalf. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. As we distribute The bread, we will hold it together and partake together as we are one loaf. If you're with us this morning and all of this seems strange to you, if Jesus is not your hope and your trust, if you haven't ever tasted of that beauty, then know that we are so glad that you're here with us and we welcome you to explore that with us and we welcome you in so many ways into all sorts of parts of our lives. We just ask that you not participate here at the table in this part of it, because what we are doing is acting out something with our hands that if you don't believe it in your heart would put you in a place of hypocrisy that would be dangerous to you. But if you are in Christ, this table is for you and his sacrifice is for you. So let's partake together.
the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. In the same manner, after the meal, the Lord took the cup. And after giving thanks, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Likewise, receive the cup together and hold it that we might all partake as one. blood of Christ shed for you. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's stand together now and give praise to our beautiful Lord.
It is good to worship the Lord with all of you this morning. It is a good and weighty and beautiful thing to sit in his word. Please join us in this fellowship time that we're going to have in a couple minutes after the service in the fellowship hall. There's coffee and there's snacks. Introduce yourselves to each other, especially if you don't know the person standing next to you. Feel free to join us in here. It'll probably be more like 1045, but um, for adult education time. And also, um, it might have started already. No, but in a minute, um, if you didn't get a chance to see it, we have some of the slide pictures from the youth missions trip that will be up on the screen here. And um, feel free, I know some of you saw it already at the banquet, but if you'd like to, you're welcome to hang out for a minute or two and watch those. But go now with the Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you his peace now and forever. Amen.